Out front next, breaking news. We're learning new details about the conditions Alexei Navalny's team says must be agreed upon in order for the opposition leader's body to be released. Details that include a secret funeral. Plus, breaking news, we are on the surface. A U.S. spacecraft touching down on the moon for the first time in 50 years. But the condition of that spacecraft is still unknown as we are standing by for the first images. And pay up. The federal judge is ruling the MyPillow CEO must pay a software expert who debunked his election lies $5 million. The man who is supposed to be getting that money is my guest. Let's go out front. Good evening, I'm Jim Shudo in tonight for Aaron Burnett and out front tonight, breaking news. Alexei Navalny's body now being held hostage. Tonight we're learning the conditions that Russia has set in order for authorities to release the opposition leader's body to his mother. According to Navalny's team, some of the demands include the Kremlin wants Navalny's body to be transported to Moscow on a special plane, followed by a secret funeral. This ultimatum comes after his mother was finally allowed to see her son's body nearly a week after he suddenly died at a brutal Arctic Russian penal colony. Yesterday evening, they secretly took me to the morgue, where they showed me Alexei. The investigators claim that they know the cause of the death, that they have all the medical and legal documents ready, which I saw, and I signed the medical death certificate. According to Navalny's team, that death certificate says he died from natural causes. It's a suspicious finding, given video of the opposition leader on the day before he died. He appears in good spirits. He was actually joking with the judge. Remember, this is also a man who narrowly survived one poisoning attempt and spent years in some of Russia's most notorious jails. And despite what Russia claims, Navalny's family and friends have been quite vocal that Putin is in fact to blame for Navalny's death. Accusations echoed by President Biden today after he met with Navalny's widow and daughter. We're gonna be announcing the sanctions against Putin who is responsible for his death tomorrow. Biden is also praising Navalny for his incredible courage in taking on Putin. And in a moment, I'm going to speak to the wife of another prominent political opponent of Putin's, Vladimir Karamurza. Right now, he is also being held in a Russian prison. Today, he spoke from behind bars. We owe it to our fallen comrades to continue working with even greater vigor to achieve what they lived and died for to make Russia a normal, free, European, democratic country. Those are dangerous words in Russia. Fred Pleitnett is out front live in Berlin tonight. Fred, what more are we learning about these restrictions that Russia is placing on Navalny's family just to have a funeral? Hi there, Jim. Yeah, it is actually quite remarkable. And all this, of course, comes from the director of the Anti-Corruption Foundation, Ivan Nizhdanov. There were really three main restrictions that we could see. You mentioned one of them, and that is that special plane that's supposed to bring the body uh, to Moscow. Well, one of the conditions on that is that Alexei Navalny's mother is not allowed to announce when the body is to arrive before it has arrived. So obviously, they're trying to keep all that under wraps, allegedly, so that people won't show up at the airport. Another thing uh, that we also discerned is that at the whole 
whole time on the ground until the funeral, uh, a member of the investigative committee, an employee of Russia's investigative committee, has to be with the family of Alexei Navalny. So obviously trying to keep the family under wraps as well. Also, allegedly, the body is supposed to be kept either in the Moscow or Vladimir region, and the Anti-Corruption Foundation believes that's because the Russian authorities fear that people could try and storm the morgue. Again, the Russian authorities themselves haven't commented on this. Another two things that we're hearing as well is that apparently the cemetery of choice of Alexei Navalny's mother has been denied to her. Apparently, some arrangement has been made there, and they have not yet agreed on a farewell hall either. Obviously, the Anti-Corruption Foundation is saying that uh, Alexei Navalny's mother has been uh, forced to agree to all this under threats. And we did hear some of that from her earlier today when she said that she really wanted all the people who are obviously devastated and who feel that the death of Alexei Navalny is a personal loss uh, for them to be able to say goodbye to Alexei Navalny and to be able to see his body. That has been denied to her. She also said that the authorities threatened her and said time is not in, on her side, saying, quote, the corpse is beginning to rot. Good Lord. Uh, just a mother trying to lay her son to rest. Fred Pleitkin in Berlin, thanks so much. Out front now, Steve Hall, his former CIA chief of Russia operations. And, and Steve, as I listen to those restrictions there, it strikes me that not only was Vladimir Putin fearful of Navalny in life as an opposition figure, but that he fears him even in death. And, and the support that, that, that he might, that um, average Russians might show to him. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I mean, that's really the only explanation as to as to why it would be that they would take all these extraordinary measures. I mean, set a, setting aside the horrific human side of this, I mean, can you imagine, you know, being a family member and being told, hey, you better make up your mind on this quick because your son's decomposing. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific. Uh, but aside from that, it really does show uh, the great fear and, and concern that the Kremlin has about this sort of spawning a larger opposition uh, movement uh, around Navalny. Um, and, you know, this is why they're this is why they are also in an, in an incredibly inhumane fashion, mocking his widow, uh, you know, ascribing all sorts of horrific things to her as well, because they fear this level of 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 sort of motivation and mobilization of Russian society behind Navalny. It's it's a great fear. And it's really interesting to see how scared Putin is of this. Uh, the, the timing of his death was notable, given it took place uh, during the Munich Security Conference when you had so many people from around the world there gathered uh, to show their support for Ukraine to discuss that. It seemed like it might be a signal, potentially. I mean, g given these restrictions, will we ever truly know with any certainty or confidence how he died in this prison? I mean, there's sort of two levels to that question. I mean, uh, it's entirely possible, given how the, how Putin controls Russia and how all information coming out of Russia is automatically suspect, it's entirely possible we'll never know the actual mechanism of his death. Um, that said, I think that's less important uh, than the overriding fact that it is Putin's responsibility that he is dead. Uh, so how it actually happened, uh, you know, might be, uh, there's a lot of speculation there, but the important fact is Putin and his and his mechanism of Putinism, his secret services and all the secret police and intelligence services, they're the ones who are responsible yeah. for Navalny's death at the end of the day. And we should note that in 2020, they, they used the most powerful nerve agent in the world in a 
first attempt to kill him. We're learning more details tonight about what exactly uh, the sanctions that the Biden administration plans to put on Russia, not just in response to Navalny's death, but also marking the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine. We're talking about hundreds of sanctions, some of which will uh, directly target Putin. I wonder, though, Will they have an impact? Because there have been a whole host of sanctions over the last several years, and Russia is still in Ukraine. Russia is still eliminating its opponents inside and outside the country. Yeah, I, you know, I really think they do actually have an impact, Jim. And they're not, they're not entirely emotionally satisfying for many of us because we're used to, you know, when, when, you know whether it's, you know, a bomb exploding or a missile strike or something like that. I mean, that's an, an immediate response by the United mm. States or their allies to some threat. And, and sanctions work differently. They're harder to find. They're harder to measure. But I can tell you there's one good measure, and that is what does the Kremlin think about them? And the Kremlin has been pretty consistent about saying they're illegal, um, you know, that they shouldn't be done. Uh, so I think they're very concerned about those sanctions over the, over the long run. Steve Hall, thanks so much. Sure. Out front now, Yevgenia Karamurza, the wife of jailed Putin critic Vladimir Karamurza, joins us. And good to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Hello, Jim. Thank you very much for inviting me. I want to begin by asking you about the video we saw today from Alexei Navalny's mother. She said officials told her that if she does not agree to a secret funeral for her son, quote, they will do something with my son's body. When you heard that, I wonder what your reaction was. I was absolutely enraged. I mean, first they tried to kill him with poison, he survives, they throw him in prison, they torture him for three years, they kill him, and now they refuse to give his body back to his mother so she can say her goodbyes and she can bury him probably. I mean, this is so despicably twisted and cruel. Mm. Uh, but it, it also shows how much they're afraid of him. The Russian authorities are afraid of Alexei even dead. Mm. They uh, do not want to allow his supporters, yes, millions of people, his supporters and his family to say their goodbyes. They want to do everything in secret. That is despicably twisted. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I was uh, watching that video and thinking of how, how dare they look her in the eyes uh, the mother who just lost her son and not just lost him they know he was murdered she knows he was murdered as how dare they look her in the eyes and tell her those things those despicable things and making threats that is just yeah it, it seems deliberately humility humiliating. Uh, I want to play more, if I can, of what Navalny's mother said after she tried to get her son's body. Have a listen. According to the law, they should have given me Alexei's body right away, but they haven't done it yet. Instead, they blackmailed me and set conditions for where, when and how Alexei should be buried. It is illegal. Now, she's being very public about this. Do you have any concern for her safety at this point? Um, you know, anyone who challenges uh, the regime and the regime's decisions in any way um, is uh, in danger. Absolutely. 
but I also, from watching that video, I realized that she will not be stopped. She, uh, she's going through hell. She has just lost her son, and yet she is composed and strong and forceful. And um, I would not, I mean, <laughs> if I were them, I, <laughs> I would do everything she says and do it fast. Well, listen, I know you've been forced to go through your own personal hell with your husband's treatment, and, and your husband sent a, a message today on video from prison in Omsk, Russia. I, I know you rarely get to hear his voice these days, so I want to play a portion of his speaking, him speaking in Russian. We'll, we'll translate it at the bottom of a screen from, for our viewers. Have a listen, and I want to get your thoughts. You know, I'm watching you react there, and I can only imagine myself in the same position. What is it like? How, how do you manage uh, to hear him, see him behind bars? Um, well, you know, when someone sent me this video today, um, I was so happy because that is the only way I get to hear my husband's voice nowadays. Mm. When he gets those rare chances to speak during one of his yeah. court hearings. And, you know, it amazes me how um, these people, these political prisoners in uh, today's Russia, not just my husband, but him as well, they uh, try to lift our spirits. They're the ones behind bars. They're the ones suffering in absolutely inhumane conditions. And they're trying to lift out spirits. They tell us to not give up. And uh, what Vladimir says uh, uh, here in this video is, of course, quintessential Vladimir. Um, mm. Only he could uh, talk about honoring our fallen colleagues and friends by being stronger and by fighting even yeah more, even fiercer, uh, and by not giving up, because this is what the regime would want us to see. And this is why also Vladimir refused to leave the country despite all those uh, attacks on his life, uh, because he said that this is what they would want me to do, to flee, to get scared and to flee, and I will not give them the satisfaction. I remember him saying this many times. And so uh, hearing it from him today meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it struck me as I saw him there with that message of hope and defiance at the end. It, it was reminiscent of Navalny's own statements from prison, sometimes infused with humor as well. Uh, how does he manage that strength, do you think, and that hope in the midst of what he's facing? Um, that... Uh, that has always been a big secret to me as well. Mm. I don't know how such people do this. I think that he truly, deeply believes in what he fights for. Well, listen, uh, I wish you the best. I wish him safety, and, and I wish you 
Uh, well, I hope you get some good news some point soon. Uh, and, and we certainly appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us tonight. Thank you very much, Jim. True courage there. Out front next, breaking news. A U.S. spacecraft has just touched down on the surface of the moon. It's the first time this has happened in some 50 years. We are standing by now for the first pictures from that spacecraft. Plus. There's a $5 million prize for anybody that can, that, that can prove the election data that, can, that I have from the 2020 election is false. Well, I'm going to speak to the man who took Mike Lindell up on that challenge and won. And a special report tonight on how China is taking a page out of Putin's playbook when it comes to taking over other territories. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking news, a U.S. spacecraft is on the moon for the first time in 50 years, but we are waiting for word on the condition of that moon lander. According to the company, Intuitive Machines, this was a success. I know this was a nail biter, but we are on the, on the surface and we are transmitting and uh, welcome to the moon. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. A new home, the lander touching down on the moon at around 6.24 p.m. Eastern time. First time, as we said, the U.S. has landed on the moon in 50 years. Kristen Fisher, she covers space for us. She's been following it all. Uh, so, Kristen, we're now at a critical point in the mission because we are expecting images about 30 minutes after the landing. Still hasn't happened yet. Do we know anything about the condition of the lander? That is the big question now, Jim. As you said, you know, we know that it has touched down on the surface of the moon. But take a look at what just happened with Japan. Japan's Slim Lander, the moon sniper as it was called. It successfully soft landed on the moon, but then it tipped over. 
right? Mm. And so then there was this big conversation about was this a success or a failure? It ended up being uh, what's been described as a partial success. So there's a chance that this could happen here. But make no mistake, the fact that it has touched down on the surface of the moon is a significant milestone for intuitive machines and for the United States, which hasn't done this since 1972. Uh, also, the first commercial company to ever do this in the history of the world, really. Uh, but Jim, the other big thing is just how intuitive machines did this. Uh, the NASA administrator and former Senator Bill Nelson said uh, that this was an Apollo 13 moment yeah. minus the people. So a lot less at stake here. This is only a robotic, uncrewed uh, spacecraft. But NASA really kind of came to the rescue here because intuitive machines uh, navigation system wasn't working and yeah. there was an experimental navigation system from NASA that was on the lander and that's what they used to land this thing. Incredible that they were able to make this work on the fly. Yeah. But as you said, Jim, a lot of questions about what condition the spacecraft is in now. Yeah, remarkable moment to do an extra orbit of the moon, make a little fix, a patch between the systems. Seems to have helped it land. We'll learn in what condition. Uh, Krista, do stay with me. I want to bring in former NASA astronaut Johnny Danny Olivas. He's uh, flown on two space shuttle mission, missions, participated in five spacewalks, both more than I have. Good to have you on, sir. I wonder what this moment means like for you. you. You, of course, have been in space many times. Your fellow NASA astronauts, they've walked on the moon. Tell us why this particular mission is important. Well, I mean, this is one of many uh, missions that we are doing as precursors to returning to the moon, human beings to the moon, um, uh, in a not too distant future, certainly before we get to the end of this decade. And uh, the, the lander, of course, is one of the key elements uh, for us being able to actually put people on the moon. There's a lot of technology that has to develop and evolve between now and the time we actually have human beings ready to make their first trip. And so, you know, these these risks, these are risky missions that we're doing, They're risky hardware. We're really pushing the frontier, both technologically and uh, as a in, in a business perspective with, with our companies. No question. We're seeing so much more cooperation between the private and public sector on this. You think of the SpaceX uh, rockets sending so many of our satellites into orbit. Kristen, I want to talk for a moment about the location on the moon where this lander touched down. Uh, there have been 21 successful moon landings to date. Most of them, though, uh, near the lunar equator. Uh, I, I believe we have a map that, that shows that. Mm -hmm. This one, though, uh, close to the South Pole. Why, why that part of the moon and why is that important? Because that is where scientists believe there is water in the form of ice. And if you have mm -hmm. water, you can use that water uh, for astronauts to drink. You can use that water to someday make rocket fuel and then use the moon yeah. as a jumping off point to go on to places like Mars and potentially beyond. Uh, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson actually said that, you know, he envisions a world where the South Pole of the Moon is a gas station of sorts wow. for the Moon. And it's also a critical spot, Jim, as you know, because this is where NASA wants to land Artemis astronauts, the first astronauts to return to the Moon since the Apollo program. But it's also where China wants to land its astronauts or Taikonauts. Yeah. Uh, they want to build a base there and so does NASA. So uh, it's a competitive spot, and that's why this was so critical, uh, intuitive machines becoming the first spacecraft to ever do that. 
Tandy, it's, it's not unlike the old space race of the 60s and 70s in that you have an international competition here to some degree. As Kristen was noting, China has put three vehicles on the moon in the past 10 years. Russia also getting back into space. You see other countries, uh, India, Japan, etc. Is that a good thing, right? I mean, how important is it for the U.S. to be ahead of the game or can we look at this more cooperatively? Well, I think the answer is, you know, uh, you know, a little bit both, right? Mm. You know, we develop technology here in the United States, and we have a, a profile which is directed by the NASA administrator and, and NASA in general. Um, we're inspiring uh, new technologies and new businesses here in the United States. And it does always help to have a little healthy competition. By the same yeah. token, we are seeing international cooperation across our globe, you know, through the signing of the Artemis Accords, as well as, you know, of course, the International Space Station, which is 16 countries across our globe that built a permanent colony in space. So there's a lot to be said for international collaboration and cooperation, especially at a time when, you know, uh, the political tensions are a little high. You know, sometimes we all get together and get along and do some really incredible things. Yeah. And so, listen, the U.S. and Russia are still cooperating to some degree, right, despite all the many conflicts down here on the surface of the earth. Uh, Danny, Kristen, thanks so much to both of you. We continue to wait for an update on the status of that spacecraft on the moon. Out front next, breaking news. The former FBI informant charged with lying about the Biden's business dealings with Ukraine has just been arrested again. Why? We're going to have the latest next. Plus, the MyPillow CEO tonight ordered to pay $5 million to the man who proved him wrong when it comes to his 2020 election lies. The man set to get that money? He's next. Breaking news, the former FBI informant indicted for lying to the FBI about President Biden and his family is now back under arrest. A Nevada judge had allowed Alexander Smirnov to walk out of the courtroom with a few conditions on Tuesday. But today, his lawyers say he was re-arrested, quote, on the same charges and based on the same indictment. Evan Perez is out front tonight. Evan, it's an unusual move, to say the least. What changed here? Yeah, very unusual. Uh, What the Justice Department did is they went to the judge who is, in the end, going to be overseeing this case. This is a judge in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. This is where uh, Alexander Smirnov was actually indicted, uh, Jim, and they got an arrest warrant for his arrest. And so that's what happened today. And so now what happens is that, you know, we're going to see him come back to court in Las Vegas. This is where he was arrested when he came back into the country and uh, where he was first uh, uh, brought uh, before a judge to face those charges. Now, what I'll read you uh, a statement from a part of a statement from his lawyers who described what happened. They say Mr. Smirnov was rearrested on an arrest warrant issued by the same court where he was planning on voluntarily appearing when required. Uh, they say that he was inside our law office at the time of his arrest, preparing for his defense. And we are we are pursuing lawful remedies to once again seek his release. What they've done, Jim, is that they've asked the judge in Las Vegas, the one who had allowed him to go free, for an emergency hearing. And so that judge, just a little while ago, issued a new order asking for the Justice Department, for the special counsel, David Weiss, to respond by tomorrow afternoon. So in the meantime, uh, Smirnov is going to be uh, spending at least the night in, uh, in jail, awaiting uh, to see what the outcome of this is. But in the end, what this means, uh, Jim, is that the judge who is overseeing this case believes, at least for now, right. that Alexander Smirnov should be uh, detained while these charges are being worked out. So we'll see hmm. how long he spends. In the end, though, Jim, uh, keep in mind, 
that uh, you know the Justice Department says that this is still an investigation. They're still ongoing, and so we will wait to see when he uh, turns up in Los Angeles to face these charges. Quite a lot of legal drama, Evan Perez. Thanks so much. Sure. Also tonight, it is time for my my Pillow CEO Mike Lindell to pay up. A federal judge ruled. Lindell legally owes $5 million to a software developer who successfully debunked Lindell's data that had falsely claimed the 2020 presidential election was stolen, something Lindell tried to dodge paying despite repeatedly promising to do so, initially in a contest called Prove Mike Wrong. There's a $5 million prize for anybody that can, that, that can prove the election data that came, that I have from the 2020 election is false. Okay, uh, is not from that is not from the 2020 election. Anybody here that's for that challenge, a five million dollar challenge, you have to sign a sheet, a release form at the front. If you did, you have time to go do that now. Out front now, the man who took Lindell up and proved him wrong, Bob Zeidman who I will note did support Donald Trump in both 2016 and 2020. Good to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. So the last time you were on the show, you said you doubted you would ever see the $5 million from Lindell, but a judge, now he's just ordered Lindell to pay up. What's your reaction? Well, I'm a little more optimistic. I still have some doubts that I'll see it. Uh, Lindell has some ability to keep appealing. I think the appeal should be denied pretty quickly. There's really no grounds for appeal at this point, but he can drag it on for a while until, unfortunately, uh, there are rumors that he's running out of money, and it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, on that point, uh, he's previously claimed that he's run out of money. He's also facing two separate defamation lawsuits from voting machine companies, including one, that $1.3 billion suit filed by Dominion. Uh, was all the time you spent on this worth it? And, and do you think, because legally, there, there are also some questions about, you know, how is he still donating to campaigns if he has no money? Yeah. Well, I've wondered about that myself. But to your point, your question about whether it's worth it, I definitely think it was. Mm -hmm. So I've done these kinds of things before, but there was rarely $5 million at stake. Um, In a sense, I owe this publicity to Mr. Lindell for offering the $5 million because that makes it more interesting. But I think it's always right to uh, seek the truth, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the truth may be. And, uh, you know, I, I make a comfortable living, so I don't need the money. And I think the reason to make money is to seek the truth. So I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for a while. This one just seems to get a lot more publicity than some of the other things I've done. Well, to, to your credit, now, as I mentioned, you supported Donald Trump in 2016, 2020. Your choice, no question. But Trump, as you know, is still pushing false claims about the 2020 election, which you proved wrong. Have a listen. The radical left Democrats rigged the presidential election of 2020, and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election of 2024. The election was rigged, let me tell you, and it was. And we have all the proof you need, too. the, The fact is, he doesn't. You showed that. It's been proven wrong in court by recounts. You name it. But but the the trouble is many Republicans still buy that line. I wonder, do you think enough prominent Republicans, lawmakers are speaking out to reject that false claim? Well, I think in my mind, the issue is complicated. I think the rules that were changed, the the voting rules that were changed for COVID made things much more complicated. 
I've always said, even before this challenge, that it was very unlikely that the voting machines were hacked. That's my specialty. The people yeah. I've trained, we go into court, we examine machines. If it was hacked, somebody would know by now. But yeah. it does concern me that Mike Lindell, his specific claims of fraud, uh, that which I disproved, uh, are still getting traction, and more so yeah. as we get closer to the upcoming election. That concerns me a lot. It, it must. I mean, you say that you, you seek the truth. You care about your country here. I mean, the, the trouble, I suppose, is that, uh, you, you know, that makes people just not trust the whole system, right? And, and um, I wonder what you think the remedy is. I imagine the, the effort, for instance, that you did here is one example of that. Well, I think, so one thing I've talked about is if I do get this money, I plan to put it towards uh, nonprofits that look into uh, election reliability. And I'm already working with the Nevada Policy Research Institute where I live uh, in Nevada. Uh, because I think, I wish that people from both parties would come together. You know, I knew people in the 20, in 2020, sorry, in the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore, Mm-hmm. And it was mostly Democrats who said the machines were hacked or not working. Then uh, again, in, uh, you know, recently it's the, it's the Republicans saying this. It seems like reasonable people could come together and come up with systems that we can all agree we need. Mm. Yeah, it used to be a bipartisan issue, election security. Bob Zeidman, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Out front next tonight, Nikki Haley vows to keep running against Donald Trump. But if she were to drop out... Where exactly would her supporters go? If she's not the Republican nominee, what do you do? I may not vote. Plus, Putin's war in Ukraine is now providing an alarming blueprint for China. We're going to have a special report ahead. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, an existential crisis for Nikki Haley's supporters. Haley insists she has zero intention of dropping out of the race, but her path to the nomination hinges on a, on a long-shot win two days from now in South Carolina, where she is still trailing Trump by 35 points in polls. So who will Haley's supporters back if she were to leave the race? Jeff Zeleny is in South Carolina with tonight's Voters Out Front report. I am not going anywhere. For supporters of Nikki Haley, her defiant pledge is music to their ears. I think she should stay in until the very last second. I I really do. I do not think that we should acquiesce. Cherie Richnow sees Haley as not merely the best choice, but perhaps the only choice in the race for the White House. If she's not the Republican nominee, what do you do? I may not vote. You may not vote for president. I may not vote. Right, because I don't think either choice is good at that point. The sun is setting on the Republican primary and on Haley's chances of catching Donald Trump before the early state delegate contest becomes a nationwide sprint. Don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't go out and vote in this primary. It matters. 
Should she not deliver a South Carolina surprise on Saturday, her supporters face a decision many would prefer not to discuss aloud. We need a president that's going to protect our democracy, not one that's going to give it away to the Russians. Ann and Marty Hupka are pulling for Haley, but bracing for the general election ahead. Come November, what do oh. you guys do? <laughs> we, we moved to Canada. <laughs> You're down to two choices. You, know, you take the lesser of, of the two evils. Of the two. Who is that in your world? It's got to be Biden. If it's, I mean, if it's Trump, then it's got to be Biden. South Carolina has long been Trump country. We've never lost here. We've never lost here. On the final day of early voting here, Porter and Linda Baldwin proudly cast their ballots for the former president. We're Trump people. Haley was a fine governor, they said, but her pointed criticism of Trump has soured their view. It's a waste of time and money, and I think they're using her. She's being used. I think she needs to step down. <laughs> Senator Tim Scott, who cast his early vote for Trump, told us a prolonged Haley candidacy was not good for the party or country. The one person that stands in the way of having a conversation between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is Nikki Haley, and so getting out of the way is incredibly important. Don Lassie, a Marine veteran, sees it differently. Any vote for Donald Trump is a vote for Putin. He's a lifelong Republican. I voted for Richard Nixon. I voted for Ronald Reagan. I voted for John McCain. I voted for Nick Romney. I voted for George H. Bush. I like Republicans, but I like mostly honest Republicans. And believes Trump will become more vulnerable as the campaign goes on, given his legal and foreign policy challenges. If Haley doesn't prevail, he's already weighing his options. Lesser of two evils is either Kennedy or Biden. I would like to pick Kennedy, but I'm not sure he will beat Trump. So I will go with Biden. At a rally late today, Haley said, I don't care about my political future. If I did, I would be out by now. By saying that, she's making the case that this candidacy at this point is about more than her. In her view, it's about the party and indeed the country. To be clear, uh, some Trump supporters find her candidacy to be an annoyance. Other Republicans find her to be a bit of an insurance policy should something happen with Donald Trump. In any case, on Saturday, the margin of the outcome here with Donald Trump will certainly determine the next chapter of her race ahead, if she'll have the financial support to go forward. But she's saying, I'm staying in at least until Super Tuesday. Jim? Jeff Zeleny in Charleston, thanks so much. Out front next, Xi Jinping is now echoing Vladimir Putin when it comes to China's claims over Taiwan. We're going to have a special report next. Plus, a new legal setback for Trump. A judge just denied the president's request to delay payment of the $350 million penalty. Tonight, China is lashing out at U.S. lawmakers for visiting Taiwan, calling it, quote, interference. It comes as China's president, Xi Jinping, is taking a page out of Putin's playbook when it comes to Taiwan. Will Ripley has the story you'll see first on Out Front. Tonight, dangerous parallels between Vladimir Putin's ambitions in Ukraine and Xi Jinping's claims over Taiwan. In his recent softball interview with Tucker Carlson, Putin justified his brutal war in Ukraine, invoking historical grievances and nationalism. Suddenly, the Ukrainian soldiers were screaming from there in Russian. 
perfect Russian saying, Russians do not surrender, and all of them perished. They still identify themselves as Russian. Putin glossing over the fact thousands of Ukrainians have died, defending their democratic homeland from Putin's army, which has also suffered huge losses for tiny territorial gains. Xi Jinping echoes Putin's narrative, consistently framing China's claim over Taiwan through a lens of historical entitlement, national rejuvenation. People on both sides of the Taiwan Strait are Chinese and share a natural affinity and national identity built upon kinship and mutual assistance. This is a fact that can never be changed by anyone or any force. Here in Taiwan, poll after poll shows the majority of people identify as Taiwanese, not Chinese. That's not how President Xi sees things. To back up his claims, Xi is expanding China's military at a pace the world hasn't seen in a century since before World War II. We can't just give up. Former Taiwan presidential spokesperson Gula Xiotaka says both autocratic leaders pose a direct threat to the autonomy and democratic systems of Ukraine and Taiwan. Putin and Xi Jinping are similar because both of them believe they represent the old imperial power in their countries. They think they are the chosen ones and they want to stay in power forever. But this is scary. The Atlantic Council's Wendy Song says democratic nations need to unite against authoritarian aggression. You hear Xi Jinping talks about the East is rising and the West is declining all the time. With that increased projected confidence comes increased demand for results to be delivered by Xi Jinping as well. Critics of Russia and China's strongman leaders say the two nuclear superpowers threaten the norms of international relations, the very foundations of democracy and freedom. Tonight, we have that high-profile delegation of U.S. lawmakers on the ground here in Taipei. And that, Jim, as you know, is infuriating for mm -hmm. Xi because the cornerstone of rejuvenating the Chinese nation, in his view, to a position of power and global stature is to take control of Taiwan. And nothing infuriates him more than to see this deepening relationship with the United States. So there are many here who really do fear, Jim, that it's only a matter of time before Xi, like Putin, puts all these years of rhetoric, all these words into action. And those visits, of course, designed to show U.S. support for Taiwan. Will Ripley in Taipei, thanks so much. Out front next, Trump suffering another loss in course after trying to delay his $350 million penalty. Tonight, a judge is rejecting former President Trump's request to delay the $355 million penalty in his New York civil fraud case. That means... Once the judgment is officially entered, Trump will have 30 days to appeal. During that time, however, he will, he will need to put up cash or post bond to cover the $355 million payment and the roughly $100 million in interest that he's been ordered to pay as well. New York Attorney General Letitia James threatened to seize Trump's assets, including his prized 40 Wall Street, if he does not pay up. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. AC360 starts now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.